actions antidotes. Your antidote to the mindset that keeps you settling for less. I actually originally was a meteorologist. I originally studied meteorology and was fascinated with the weather from a really young age. Now, a lot of meteorology jobs go in a lot of different directions, and a surprising number of them are actually all about coding or all about writing code or sometimes even manual data entry. My guests today are actually people I know from my previous life as a meteorologist who, in their pursuits, have found a way to kind of break free from the corporate structure. As you know, the corporate structure is suffocating a lot of people right now. We have these old school ideas, and I won't go off too much on a tangent about it. I'll let my guests do the talking. Today's guests are Dima Smirnoff and Dana McLone, who are the co-founders of Hydromet Consulting. Dima, Dana, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having us, Steve. It's really a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks, Steve. So just to begin, tell us a little bit about your overall job functions. Now, Hydromet Consulting, I just want to orient everyone to what that means. Hydro meaning water, but maybe not everyone's familiar with what hydrometeorology is. Sure. So I would caveat all of this by saying that we are one year into our startup. So we are a very fluid company right now in terms of our vision. We don't really have a niche, which is obviously has its upsides, but also its downsides. But in terms of what we do individually, I would call myself the, the scientist, which involves a lot of coding, like you said, but also a lot of brainstorming of ideas and just kind of throwing stuff on the wall and seeing what hits both in terms of day-to-day operations as well as pursuits for the future. Yeah. And it's kind of been like a dream project of ours to go out on our own for a while. Our focus is around heavy rainfall, both forecasting and doing a little bit of postseason analysis for our clients. But that's our main focus. So both of our backgrounds overlap with mostly the engineering sector and water resources sector. So we like to define solutions for our clients that are both satisfactory to the meteorological side of science and actually solves the problems that they're having. One of the things that drew me to science originally when I selected a major so many years ago was the idea of kind of discovering things, being creative, problem solving in a way more about figuring things out. In the corporate structure, do you feel like a lot of scientists in general, I'll say this to more than just meteorology, end up kind of more in the realm of just trying to like, I don't want to say debug code or figure out how to like make a program work rather than the actual process of scientific discovery and the inquisitiveness and curious mindedness that go along with it. Yeah, I would say, I think you've hit on one of the key limitations of being in a larger engineering firm like Dana and I both were for a number of years. It's kind of just the reality of the projects involved. A lot of the projects that the company did were with the Federal Emergency Management Association. And so it was a lot of manual effort in terms of just, you know, fixing shape file lines, like fixing GIS minute details and things like that. And from the perspective of science as we remember it from, let's say, undergrad or grad school, it's definitely not really reminiscent of that. The engineering and in scientific fields, I think in general, in the private sector, do have unfortunately limited time to do pure discovery. And I think that is what led us to try our own thing, because I feel like in the last year, I've definitely just had more brainstorming sessions and just more kind of open thoughts than I did previously when 
work in the normal 40-hour work week. To kind of go along with that, being able to do this on our own, we can kind of control the pace. Sometimes corporate pace is very quick. We need something turned around. So you're just looking for an immediate solution rather than looking for a long-term solution or a creative solution or even just like fixing inefficiencies in something that you see. So being able to pick and choose where you want to put your time and effort into without thinking about overhead all the time has been freeing creatively. That creative freeing, because I feel like that's a common cause of people feeling disengaged from their jobs. There's no creativity. There's someone else telling them what to do. Now, just out of curiosity, do you have investors or other people at this point that you have to answer to that may have a little bit of input into your timelines and stuff like that? Fortunately, no, we don't really have any plans of that at the moment. But sometimes, depending on how things evolve, obviously, you may need to bring people in if you want to stay afloat. So like I said, we don't really have any vision of bringing outside people in at this time. If it comes down to the fact where we have to bring in somebody else to stay afloat, then we'll obviously have to have a, a critical conversation about that. One of the things that's motivating a lot of people, especially in our millennial generation, is this desire for autonomy. Now, I'm not saying that older generations didn't want autonomy. See it as a possibility, I think, more in previous generations. It just wasn't there. What has this autonomy allowed you to do both your consulting business as well as in life in general? Yeah, that's a great question, Steve. So I think in terms of kind of the practical stuff that people feel day to day, I think we currently have two projects that we're working on as opposed to when we were or at least for me personally, when I was working for the engineering firm, I probably had anywhere from like four to eight things that I would have to put on my timesheet every week. And so obviously, if you just kind of drill down to the amount of hours, let's say we're working 40 hours here and there, then if you divide that 40 hours by eight versus by two, that's a humongous difference in the amount of commitment to one project. I think that's definitely one of the biggest upsides is that we're just constantly thinking about we're really becoming specialized on these projects and allowing ourselves, like Dana said, to tweak inefficiencies that have always bugged us in the past, as well as to throw out new ideas uh, because the field, like you said, is evolving rapidly. Yeah. And to kind of go along with that, I've actually found it easier to say no because we're so highly specific in what we do and what we want to go after. I don't feel like I'm letting anyone down. Obviously, one of the best benefits is you get to set your own hours and choose your workload. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we were both on the same page with. We have other interests outside of our nine to five job, 40 hours a week. And sometimes there's more hours that need to be put in. Sometimes there's less. And it's a much more natural balance of reading the room and what needs to get done. And saying we have the ability to say no. And it's also fantastic, first of all, that you found a way to not feel that guilt about saying no and to recognize that that's better for everyone. I think I would just love for my audience to take that point out of this discussion and say, okay, sometimes you have to put that saying no into context. But do you also feel like quality of your service that you give to the customers is much better because you're doing the amount of projects you're doing that's going to work out best for everybody? Yeah. And we definitely have been able to put more into our projects. And with that, when you have the ability to have a little bit more time to spend on a project, you find these creative ideas and being able to have this 
company on our own, we can go through and execute those ideas. We don't have to go up a chain of command to give a little something extra to our clients, which is really what we pride ourselves on is constantly finding improvements and then implementing them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Our clients definitely benefit. Now I need to ask this. Do you ever have any friction as co-founders when you have differences in how to serve a client or which client's a good idea or anything like that? That's a good question. So fortunately, I would say we've been sailing smoothly so far. But like I said, we're only a year in. So in the future, there could be things that arise for sure. I think the beauty of what we have going here is that we complement each other very well, which is kind of a bigger topic. I think if you're going to do this stuff, if you're going to go out on your own, it's hard to do it by yourself. And it's hard to do it with somebody that you might not get along with when you have to be on the phone with them all the time and 40 hours a week, potentially. And so, so far, I think we're doing well, but I'm not going to say that's going to last indefinitely because there might be a hiccup here and there, but I think we're, we're optimistic. Yeah. And I think it helped that our relationship started as colleagues first. For background, all three of us go storm chasing together sometimes in the spring. And Stephen was kind of my connection to Dima initially. So just having that colleague and then friendship level and then back to colleague has been very helpful. I think we understand how each other operate and we're very different, which so far has been a huge asset, but we'll likely have differences in priorities later on. There's an interesting backstory. Current company came together. So Dana and I overlapped, I think maybe like a couple of years. We were at the engineering firm. So I started there first and then she was actually brought on later. So I basically helped hire her. And at the time I was like starting to already consider leaving. But you know, at that point it was let's say 80-20 that I was going to stay still. And I thought we'd be able to maybe grow the line, the hydro met line within the company. But it soon kind of became apparent to me that it was in my best interest to weave for just a variety of reasons of work life reasons. And so Dana essentially took over everything that I was doing. And for a while, I was like, wow, this is great. I feel like she's going to be able to just take this where I've always wanted to. But I just never had, I guess, the passion. Something was missing. But then eventually, we kind of started talking again. And then she brought me in as like an independent contractor. And then at that point, I feel like we have a much above average of complementary benefits of working together. And I just felt like our projects were just crushing them. And so I was like, I wonder if it makes sense to start something on our own because we already had some um, relationships with clients at that point. And so I think there's probably a lot of luck involved here, but I would say overall, I think the fact that we complement each other in a lot of ways, I think is crucial to this thing working long-term. So there's luck, but there does require some kind of a mindset of being open and being present and being able to see the things in front of you. I think everyone has the potential for luck at some point in their lives, but some people just don't see it. As a gambler, I always say that sometimes succeeding in life is like rolling the dice and you need to roll boxcars, which is two sixes. And it's just a matter of rolling it enough times to eventually get that roll. Yeah. I second that. Luck is a weird thing because it's it seems like sometimes it's not as random as you think, right? Yeah. Just putting yourself out there and being ready to receive right, or being ready to like take advantage of the opportunities that come about. So one of the questions I have to ask is that if any listeners are out there are thinking about starting their own firm, thinking about going off on their own and trying to think about partnerships, because as I think a lot of people are discovering now, as you pointed out, 
it's hard to do everything by yourself. It's not easy. I host this podcast by myself, but I have a lot of people who are helping me in one way or another, whether I hired them or whether they were just nice enough to introduce me to people and give me some advice and stuff like that. What would you say if someone's looking for who's the right person or who are the right people to go into business with that they should be looking at from their perspective? Yeah. So I think the first thing is you have to have somebody that's trustworthy that you know is going to hold up their end of the bargain. And when you start to think about you know potential hesitations when you're thinking about putting something together are those deal breakers. And it's also really important that they're good people that have built good relationships with clients in their past that have kept up with their networks. Because what we've found is we were in the business long enough that we've built these great connections. So when we needed to reach out for some development work, we knew right where to go. When we had a strong enough relationship with our clients that when we left, they allowed us to continue work. And we've found some really useful online sites for like logo design. And so it's just kind of being aware of all of your connections. And so what do those people that you're going to go into business with, what kind of connections do they bring as well, right? Because you want to make as big a network as possible. So you have plenty of people to lean on. We actually have not had to do any marketing yet because everything up to this point has been word of mouth, which I think is interesting because when it comes to marketing, I basically am an epic fail. And so if I had to market, it probably wouldn't survive, right? And so I guess what the point of this is that I think the conventional mindset, especially with social media, is that you have to like, you know, do a hundred thousand different things. You have to market here and there and everywhere. And I feel like right now we're writing that old school mentality of like we're just doing honest, hard work for clients delivering. And I guess the word is getting out for at least sufficiently enough for us to stay in business for now. And that's interesting. So one of the things I'm wondering about that is when it comes to figuring out what you need in a partnership or what you need in a board, whether you want three people, five people, seven people, part of the equation seems like it's going to be what your business needs at the time. And if you needed someone that was good at marketing, you might have needed to bring on another person, whether it be hiring or bring on another co-founder that has that expertise that knows how to get your thing up from the SEO or get the word of mouth or do those social media blasts and actually get noticed. Yeah. And I think that's a discussion that we'll have to have a little bit down the line. But right now, what's really neat about our situation is we have a good base of work. We're enjoying working together. So we're coming up with all of these new creative projects that we could potentially do, which means bringing on other people. But I think we're building a really good base before we try to get too big. But yeah, absolutely. We'll definitely need to bring on people when we start to better define our vision and where we want to go moving forward as we start to attract different types of employees and clients and that sort of thing. But we haven't had those discussions yet. We're just kind of enjoying being in the moment and being able to do all of these fun, different types of projects. And just to continue with what Dana was saying, I think one important thing is you have to definitely swallow your pride in terms of not trying to do everything on your own. I think for me personally, that's been probably one of the most important things that I've learned is that sometimes it's better to hire that expensive developer that you know is going to do a good job than try to hack half of it on your own and then have to bandage it up later. I think you can basically learn to code on YouTube, right? And so it's almost like this draw that's like, oh, I don't need anybody. Like I could, me and YouTube can just do everything or whatever. 
that's not probably true if you're trying to make it long-term. I mean, maybe if you have a pill that would make you able to like live without sleep or something, that would possibly be true. But <laughs> I feel like of all the people in the world, you should be the one to develop that kind of pill, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would love it. Like I am the one that got really mad the first time after moving to Denver when I heard last call at 1.30 a.m. So uh, I remember you saying that. Yeah. <laughs> I think you need to get a shirt that says sleep. No, thanks. <laughs> Which is important because I actually had previous guests tell me about the importance of sleep. A previous guest, I asked, what do we need to do to become more creative? And his first answer was sleep more. So (laughs) I should be swallowing my pride about that particular thing. One last aspect about the finding the right partners that I'm curious about, given your previous statements, is what are the red flags? In your words, what would be a red flag that you'd observe about someone that says, I don't want to partner with this person? Um, I think... The first thing I look at is their history. Do people like being around this person? And issues that people have had in the past, are those issues that are with that person individually? Or is this some sort of trend that seems to be happening with a lot of people? I think just the history of somebody in their career speaks volumes about who they are and where they're going. And have they grown and learned from their mistakes? Have they changed? Because everybody has growth that they have to do personally and professionally. And who you are at the beginning of your career shouldn't be who you are now. So giving a little period, some grace, if you will. Yeah, I agree with that. And I guess the only other thing I would add is maybe because this is important to me is the passion. Like if the person must basically be glowing of passion for whatever you're doing. And if they're not, then... You know, it's not necessarily a deal breaker, but to me, it's kind of a red flag. That's a key part of of what your podcast is trying to deliver. It's like, would you rather be doing something else? And should you pursue that and, you know, cut your losses at some point? Yeah, it is tough to be around people who would rather be doing something else. I know that there are at least 60 to 80 million people in the US alone that would rather be doing something else than whatever they wake up to every single morning. So that's one of the areas that really hits me hard. And one of the things I love about the guests that I bring on this episode or any episode of this podcast, because on this podcast, everyone that I've ever interviewed has loved talking about what they're doing. As soon as you get into the room, you can see if you ask someone like, what do you do? Which I hate that question, but whatever version, you know, what's your work? You can see the difference between the person that comes in and goes, I'm an East Coast regional strategist. Now let's talk about something else. Let's get lit like right away. Or versus the person who's like, just, you can tell they're excited. They're like, yeah, I started this business. It's really great. We're serving this, this, and that. It's really important. So one other question I have about your process of leaving your engineering firm, kind of going off on your own and starting Hydromet Consulting is you talked about how it's mostly been people that you've already had relations with, with, and so you didn't have to do any marketing or anything like that. What challenges did you encounter as far as kind of getting in contact with these clients, your current clients, and kind of bringing them on? Yeah. So initially, we had no idea what the clients would do. So we kind of had a different starting point than what was actually true. (laughs) So we kind of had like these backup ideas and stuff we could build and ways we could bring in revenue our first year, how long we could go without, you know, having a large project. And then we were lucky enough 
to leave on a good note. I left the engineering company on a very good note and hoping to continue to work with them. And we ended up working with them this last year on a project that was finishing up. So that kind of goes back to the old, don't burn any bridges. Even though you might not want to be a part of the corporate structure, it doesn't mean that they don't have a great set of resources for you to use and to tap into. So kind of what we were talking about before, just like always have your eyes open to opportunities and be flexible to take them and change and kind of go with the flow of the situation. So I would say we were lucky. We didn't have a ton of roadblocks. Dima is super savvy with setting up AWS servers. So that was probably like our biggest, oh no, we're going to have to like set up a bunch of scripts and get all of our stuff online and get everything secure for our clients. So you want people that can step up to the plate and be comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's where a lot of growth goes. But it's that fine balance that goes back to what Demo was talking about earlier. You can't be everything and you have to know when you can step back and say, nope, don't want to take that on. And when it's okay to step outside your comfort zone and say, yep, I can go ahead and take that on. And just for everyone's reference, AWS stands for Amazon Web Services, which is the number one, kind of the leader right now in the field of cloud computing. So a very important, if I go back to the lessons from a previous episode, a high income skill. Nice. <laughs> I think Dana covered last year or so very well. I think for me, this has been part of a, a bigger sabbatical, if you will. So I'm 36 now and I finished my postdoc when I was 28. Mm-hmm. And so I think that whole period, the last eight years or so, I feel like I've been chewing on all these different ideas as to whether, you know, what is the thing that I want to do? And I think starting Hydromet Consulting was kind of probably the last part of that sabbatical, because I think that once you start these kind of things, like the goal is to build inertia, you know, which is something that's arguably one of the biggest differences between what you do in the corporate world is that your inertia is essentially, let's say your retirement account, right? But you don't really have like any other equity, both financial equity, as well as almost like passion equity in whatever you're doing. And so I think that Hydromed Consulting answers both of those calls for me. And the only other thing, I don't know how much you want to approach this topic, Steve, but I will say that for me, being able to piece out of the corporate world did involve a lot of savings. So we, I was able to save a little bit of money. And that was, I think, the backstop to have. And I know that certain people have different risk appetites for that kind of thing. Some people just say, middle finger, peace out. I'm going to do whatever I want, You know, live the van life or whatever, start a blog. I'm not one of those kind of people. And I don't know if Dana can relate or where her thoughts are on, on that aspect. I feel a lot of the same. I've actually interviewed previous guests that have talked about the different risk appetites. And one of the goals of this podcast is to make this idea of following your passions, following your true north, your alignment, something accessible to everybody, not just a few special people. And yes, there are a few people who are really risk-seeking, who are really able to just take that leap and go for it. But there are some other people that would rather have a little bit of a backstop, whether that be a little bit of savings or a friend or family member willing to take them in or a you know high dividend stock yield that they could live off of for a little while. Either way, I think the overall point is kind of planning for it and that it's not just a quick decision. One of the other aspects about leaving the corporate world or leaving, how do you make it so that you realize something's not for you and you can move on and not have any resentment on your side and also not any resentment on their side? Them saying, okay, you know, this person, we tried it out. They tried it out. They just didn't really love our setup. They didn't want to be badgered about 
showing up at 817 when they're supposed to get there at 815 or some other thing like that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think one thing that might be interesting to share here is that we're both meteorologists, climate scientists by training. I'm a climate scientist. Dana is, is, I think, what you refer to as a meteorologist, maybe atmospheric scientist. And I think it's a bit of a interesting niche outside of academia. A lot of these bigger engineering firms do have these weather departments, but they're usually tiny. And so it's really hard sometimes to grow the kind of weather specific business line, which is, you know, the stuff that really drives us. And so I think in this case, we, at least me personally, I think I recognize that it might actually be in the best interest of both us with this new Hydromet Consulting Group, as well as the existing engineering firm to coexist like that, because ironically, we're actually going to be possibly partnering with them on a fairly you know sizable project uh, beginning next summer. And so like Dana said, like we both left on a good note. I think they both saw what we're capable of doing, our passion. We always maintain good relationships. I think there are great people there. So there's pretty much nothing personal about leaving in this case. Yeah. And I think to go along with that, if there is any resentment, take time away. We'll really step back from the situation so emotions aren't running high and the resentment can start to wear off a little bit. You can start to see the pros, like why you were there in the first place, what drove you for the first couple of years. Because a lot of time, like I said, there's good resources at large corporations and good people that work there. And you don't need to step away from it completely. It can just look like a different relationship. And that's like kind of grander point in all of society, right? Like one of the things that a maturity level I wish I had reached earlier in life and I wish a lot more people would start reaching now is this idea that someone over there can be different from you and that's not really a threat as long as they can be them and you can be you and we can find a way to work best with that. And if someone wants that structured corporate environment, just let them have that structured corporate environment, but they also need to be cognizant that you know there's a lot of people that maybe don't want that and maybe don't want a boss giving them advice on everything and want a little bit more creativity, a little bit more room to flex those creative muscles and get a little bit outside the box and thinking. Yeah, that's a great point, Steve. You and I have discussed this and this part can't be understated. So for example, you know, my wife, she works at a more stable nine to five job. And I think that is her preferred type of work. And so I'm not going to try to sugarcoat and say that there hasn't been friction with my set of working and hers because there has. And I think for me, the primary challenges are maybe the hours is that my hours are usually basically everything outside of nine to five. Like my best ideas come, it seems like first thing in the morning, you know, late at (laughs) night, 2 a.m. Who who knows when? I can't predict it. (laughs) But I think one important thing at this point, I kind of see the vision of maybe more free time finally starting to surface, which I think is kind of a selling point, right? If you and your spouse are arguing about time, there has to be a reward for taking the risk of going out on your own in this situation is that, yeah, I should have a little bit more free time finally, let's say in the next year or maybe starting next year indefinitely. So fingers crossed. And kind of something that Dima said that we did recently were these like personality tests. There's a whole psychology portion of working that I feel was overlooked in our undergraduate education or graduate education. You kind of have to know what makes you tick and how you work with others and what potential conflicts you'll have with different personality types, as well as your Einstein hours, if you will, where you get your good ideas and protecting that time. Because in the end, if you can 
maximize those Einstein hours, you can get to the end, kind of like what Dima was talking about. Like, ah, I figured out this idea in this company where I can eventually have a ton more free time, which is invaluable, really, especially when you have young kids like they do. So they want to be able to have different things. We have different North arrows as well. We don't have just one passion. So it gives you time to really create a full fulfillment of your life. And what's the best way to figure out your Einstein hours? I took one of those like circadian rhythm tests, but I've also talked with people who have said that the best way to do it is just observe yourself and figure it out for yourself as opposed to like taking a test. Yeah. I was laughing with Dima the other day. Sunday night, I reorganized my entire office and I walked in Monday morning and I just felt like an ease sitting down. I was like, yep, this like reinforces that my Einstein hours are in the morning before things have kind of like taken off and gotten crazy for the day. I feel very relaxed in this environment. So I think it's, yeah, observing when you're not just doing your best work, but when you are creating solutions for problems you've been kind of chewing on over a period of time. So one last topic I want to make sure I cover because people are probably expecting this of me and of this particular conversation. Now, you're specialized in extreme rainfall. And a lot of people right now are concerned about whether or not the frequency or severity of this extreme rainfall is increasing over time due to the climate change phenomenon. First of all, does this factor into some of the work that you're doing now? And if so, if not, do you have any thoughts on what we're observing and what we need to do to build some of that resiliency around this or potential increase. in You could probably start a podcast just dedicated to this topic, but I think in terms of the specifics of your question, so I would say we don't explicitly deal with climate change in our work right now, although we have some kind of side influence, if you will, on some of our seasonal predictions, because when we build our seasonal so one thing that we have a big passion about is stream flow out west. Obviously, big deal. You know, water resources is a huge topic, especially in California with the droughts. And so to that end, when we build our seasonal models, we do have to take into account whether or not there are longer term trends, because in statistical models, I'm not going to get too far into the weeds here. But if there are trends, then using, let's say, your 60 years of record could be problematic if there's a, a giant downward trend in your stream flow because your model is just going to keep saying there's less and less stream flow available every year. And so you want to make sure that you identify that. And if there is a big trend downwards, let's say that you confirm whether or not it's from, you know, stuff outside of climate change or actually climate change. And if it is climate change, we probably wouldn't even want to forecast for that point because there are too many complications involved. I think in terms of, you know, what we've done in the past, we've done studies where there's an absolutely clear signal of, much heavier rainfall. One particular study was out in Virginia Beach. It didn't look at any projections. It just simply looked at the last 100, 120 years of data. And the results were so conclusive that this is extremely rare, but the results were so conclusive that we handed the report to the city you know, municipal department and they actually upped their design standards, which means that essentially how much water they expect to be routing off into the sewer lines because they're so concerned about the more frequent occurrence of standing water in various places. Here in Colorado, I don't know, Dana can obviously feel free to chime in here, but I have not seen anything outside of maybe like the spring snowmelt time getting earlier. I have not seen much to indicate that there are trends in stream flow. Um, there are trends in temperature, absolutely. But trying to attribute those to urban heat island or climate change is 
a big old box that you're opening. So if you want to go down the road, we'd be happy to chat, but I'm not sure how much you want to go into that. Maybe we'll cover it in another setting for sure. I think the interesting component about it is that most things are not as simplistic as a lot of people like to make it out to be. People just like to just say climate change. And oftentimes, whether it's climate change or any other issue, any other observance, any other phenomenon that we're seeing, whether it be atmospherically or culturally, it's usually you can't just point one thing. Usually it requires diving deeper, being curious and diving deeper into it. Some things there is a, for statistical purposes, there's distribution There's a tailed every distribution. And sometimes you just happen to have a really rare event. Yep, absolutely. I think I'm a fervent believer that climate change is real. At the same time, I don't think the world's going to end in 12 years. So I'll just <laughs> leave it at that. Definitely. What would you say for anyone that's listening that wants to start their own firm or has the idea, maybe they're where you were a few years ago, where the idea is in their head, but they're still thinking about a lot of things. What do you think is the number one thing that these people should be considering at this point in their journey? I think there's a lot of factors, but you can only control so much risk. So get yourself to a place where you're 80-20 and kind of take a leap of faith. Put merit in your background, your connections, and you'll find solutions. You're a lot stronger and more resilient than you think. And if you're not, fake it till you make it. Make yourself uncomfortable. Try new things. Put yourself out there. But yeah, you definitely have to plan for it financially. Make sure you have the right partnerships, somewhat of a business plan to kind of get you through that first year. But it's only a couple of years of your life. If it doesn't work out, you can find something else that does. But if the benefits pay out, which like we're hoping and the way that they will, it's completely worth living a more meager lifestyle for a couple of years as you get it going. Yeah, I second that. I think if there's one thing that I have to say, it's don't be afraid to fail and even expect to fail. Like there's going to be a certain percentage of a chance that you're going to fail. And so if that makes you uncomfortable, then maybe it's not quite time yet to start something. As is the theme of the podcast, it all involves a certain mindset. And it sounds like it's a slightly different mindset when it comes to risk, where you're being not adverse to risk, but smart about risk. And that smart about risk could mean something different to everybody else. But understanding there is risk. I sometimes lose it when people say gambling's too risky when you buy a house, you're gambling that that neighborhood's going to keep getting better or it's going to at least stay nice and not turn downwards. So awesome ideas to kind of wrap up on. First of all, I'd like to congratulate you both on the success that you've had so far with HydroMet Consulting. Dana, Dima, thank you so much for joining us today on Actions Antidotes. And thank you to all the listeners out there for tuning in and engaging in the Actions Antidotes community. And I would like to encourage you to tune in again for some more episodes of Actions Antidotes, where I will interview more people who have, in some capacity or another, followed something that they were passionate about, as opposed to the red flag we talked about before, where you observe someone that just doesn't care about what they do. Thanks so much, Steve. Yep. Thanks for having us, Steve. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Have a good day. 